Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Now, a few, a few months ago, we had a wider leaders team meeting and um, someone brought a word about us as a church growing into maturity, both together and individually. Um, and in many ways, we as a, as a sort of an eldership team got really, really excited about this fact because for the last few years, we've been laying foundations. We've been establishing our vision, which if you don't know, is to see the, <laughs> see the glory of God known across London and the nations. Uh, we've been establishing our, our values, our missional priorities, and now feels like a really good time to really step into what we feel God is calling us into, which is this idea of maturity. Now, maturity means a few things. It means being intentional. You know, there is a reason why we are constantly talking about discipleship. There's a reason why we're constantly encouraging people to turn up to the prayer meetings. It's about being intentional together as a community. It also takes practice. You might have realized that we, we often read the Apostles' Creed together. And actually, we think that repetition can be really helpful to get our heads around doctrine, to really let it sink into our hearts and change us from within. But maturity also means recognizing what we're not so good at or what might be missing. And so this morning, if you don't know the news yet, It is um, really exciting to be able to say that we believe now is the time to start the journey towards recognising and appointing deacons. That was excitement, I think. Is that excitement? It sounds like excitement to me. Um, And we're really excited about this because we believe that this is really going to be a a marked chapter as a a church together in growing, in stepping forward in maturity um, and in stepping forward and flourishing as a church. Now, for some of you, you might come from churches where deacons were a thing, and deacons can potentially come with positives, and they can't, can come with negatives. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts 6, and we're going to try and understand what actually being a deacon is all about. Now, we want to be a church that reflects God's version of church, not our kind of human understanding of what church should be. And so actually it's what's really important to do is to turn to the Bible and see what does the Bible say about church government? What does the Bible say about deacons? And in fact, there's honestly speaking not a huge amount. But we're also told the Bible is sufficient, which means we need to pay careful attention to what the Bible does say in order to really grapple with this idea of deacons. Otherwise, we kind of get into this habit of filling in the gaps with our own worldly wisdom. And that's, that's not the kind of church we want to be, right? We want to be a church that is true to God's word. Now, there are two passages that traditionally speaking people will turn to when looking at deacons. The first is 1 Timothy 3, which is very much about the character of deacons, who deacons are. And the second is Acts 6, which specifically talks about what deacons do. Now, I've decided to focus on Acts 6 for this morning for for two very important reasons. Number one, it does focus on what they physically do, and I think there is candidly quite a lot of confusion. It's possible, depending on your background, that you're, you've come from a church where there was a diaconate, a board of deacons who were kind of almost there as a, a sense check to the pastor, you know, keeping Daniel in line and making sure he's doing the right thing. But that is a gross misunderstanding of what a deacon, deacon's role is. But there are also times where you might have been in a church where deacons are kind of like hushed to the side. They're little more than kind of 
personal assistance to the elders, which again is just a, a gross misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about the role of deacons. And some, sometimes even they're seen as just simply a stepping stone, a stepping stone until you one day make it towards elder. And it's just, this is so, so wrong. The second reason I wanted to touch on Acts 6 is because of these things, why deacons matter and actually the significance that is placed on this very biblical role. And in my mind, actually, it reflects the upside down kingdom that we're told so much about in God's word. You know, if you ever think of a, a leadership uh, team structure on a, on a slide, if you've ever seen one at work, they're always like this, right? They're pyramid shapes. But actually what God calls us to in the word is to look at leadership like this. It's an upside down pyramid. Okay, supporting those who we deem more significant than ourselves. And that's what this is all about. Now, before I begin, I just want to make one thing very clear. A deacon is a, a, a part of church government, government. It is a formal role within the Bible that is, is recognized, that is, is, is uh, one of a few. But it is not a prerequisite for a church. Right? We're not not a church because we don't yet have deacons, okay? just to be super clear about that. This is about helping the church to flourish. And that's why we think now is a really, really, really good time to start on this journey towards recognising and appointing deacons. So what we're going to do is simply work through this passage and understand what makes up a deacon. What is a deacon? What is, what is this weird word deacon? What does it actually mean? You know? Um, and I think there are three key things that we can, we can call out. And the first, very pragmatically, is that a deacon is a calling. Okay, a deacon is a calling. Now, verse two, it says, it is not right, and this is the, the apostle speaking, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then verse four, it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Now, at first glance, that sounds really arrogant. Right? Because it's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're far too good to be you know, waiting on tables. That's, that's not our role. We're, we're going to focus on proper, proper work, right? Preaching the word and, and prayer. And yet, what is the response of the church to this proclamation that seven are going to be chosen from amongst the people? It is that the whole gathering was pleased. So if it was arrogant, if there was a sense of kind of like, we're better than you and therefore we shouldn't demean ourselves with this task, why is the whole gathering pleased? And to understand this, we really need to understand the word diakonai, which is the Greek for where we get the word deacon. And it actually means servant. Okay, that's what it, what it means. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 to 7, just to help lend some flavor to this, to help really understand what this word means in the context used in scripture. It says this in verse four, it says, now there are varieties of gift, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of, diakonai, service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 1 Corinthians 12, verse four to six. Now the key thing here is verse 5, varieties of service, diakonai, it's this word again. And what it means is diverse ministries. Now in this context, we're talking about two very specific things, the ministry of the word and the ministry to the poor, to the sick, to the, to the stranger, or what we often refer to as the mercy ministries. Okay, And that is the distinction that's being called out here. And we need to understand why, and we're actually told in verse 7 why this is so important to have distinct 
roles within the context of church government. To each is given the manifest manifestation of the Spirit to perform all these things, these variety of services. Why? For the common good. This church, our church, will flourish more, better and more fully if we have the full government that God intends his church to have. Right? It is for the common good. So both eldership, deaconing, all for the common good, all for the flourishing of the church. So number one is that it is a calling and it's a unique calling. Now, as I said before, we often refer to the mercy ministries when we talk about deacons. That might be how you understand deacons in your head. Now, I also want to challenge us a little bit on that because it's actually, I think, uh, not a fair way of summarising what deacons are actually all about. Now, in this context, true, we were talking about the distribution of food to the poor. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a, in a second. But we often also talk about practical administration. And, and again, in this context, that's what they were asked to do. That was the specific task asked of them. And yet we need to ask ourselves why some of these words are used, right? All of scripture is God-breathed and all of it is helpful for our teaching. So why is it important to call out that these men had to be of, or women, there were the female deacons in the Bible, why these, these particular men had to be of good repute, full of the Spirit, and wise. If they were just waiting tables, frankly, they didn't need to be these three things. So what more? What, we, what are we missing here? What more is there? Equally, it's more than a support function, right? Why did the apostles themselves, the twelve chosen by Jesus, why did they lay hands on them and anoint them for this special task? So, again, we need to turn back to this word diaconi, because, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong for anyone who does ancient Greek, but um, the, the, the reality is in this word we can actually learn an awful lot about the Bible's intention and what the Bible says is true. Now, diaconi as a word is used to describe every office and gift, and here's the key, used in service of the church. Okay, it's used in service of the church. Note that isn't in service of the elders, as is sometimes assumed with deacons. This is in service of the church, for the flourishing of the church. So yes, it's a call, but it's a specific call to serve the church. Now we also need to remember that deacons aren't an excuse for the rest of us to do nothing. Okay, because as, as Herman Bavink, if you've ever read Herman, Herman Bavink, a bit of light reading on the weekend, um, if you're laughing, it's because you've read Bavink. Um, he says that there are two general things that are true of a Christian. Number one is that we are both duolos, which means a slave, and in this context is a slave to Christ, but we're also diakonos, which is servants to each other. So if you're a Christian, you are already called to be a servant to one another. So as a community, our role here is to serve one another, to be here for each other's good. So hang on a minute, what's the difference between that and a deacon then? Because if a deacon is called to be a servant of the church, and yet we're all called to be servants of the church, why, why this distinction? Well, the, the key distinction in terms of the, in, in the Greek is simply we are all called to be diakonos, servants, but some are called to be diakonai, deacons, an intended office. So it's a good intended office. It's a unique calling to serve the church. But how is this different from everyone else? I'm going to tell you a little story about uh, 
a work context, and hopefully this will help land the, land the point. So I've been very fortunate in my career. I've um, led teams for a very long, long time. And one of the things that we struggled with historically as a, as a company many moons ago now was respecting one another's time and respecting each other as individuals. Now, that might sound a bit odd, but I think in a work context, we can often forget that you know, everyone's time is precious you know, and we need to show that we respect that time and, and how we use that time. And one of the things that was a common problem for us was that meeting rooms, I don't know if you ever have this at work, but meeting rooms, probably not these days, meeting rooms were being left in an absolute mess, right? So people would go in, do a workshop, leave stuff all over the wall, leave post-it notes up, leave, you know, all good stuff, but they'd leave it so the next group coming in then had to clear it away. And we were like, this is actually really disrespectful. How do we change, how do we change this culture? Because this is not who we want to be. So we, we turned to some theory and we kind of went, right, well, how do you ch change the culture of an organization? And we found a really helpful article that said there are three things. There are symbolic reminders, things like this, right? This, this sign, this is a symbolic reminder. And just prompts, it just helps us remember what's key, so the values that we want to adhere to. There's number two is keystone behaviors. So key acts that we do and perform every day. And then there's attitudes and beliefs. Now, the key thing is that it's behaviors that actually change culture. You can plaster signs all over the wall, because we tried this. <laughs> we had little signs up saying, please respect the room, you know, please tidy up after yourself. People ignore them. People just forget about them. And people's attitudes and beliefs, it's not the first thing that comes to mind if it's not already part of the culture. So in the end, what did we do as a leadership team? We started going in after everyone else's meetings and tidying the room. And eventually people took notes and they went, hang on, why are you guys tidying the room? Oh, it was left messy. Oh, yeah, that might be in us. Oh, we better do something about that. And suddenly over time, and it took time, but over time, things started to change and the whole culture of the organization become really, became really respectful. Now, this might seem like a bit of a detour, a bit of a side topic. Why am I saying it? Because while we're all called to be servants, deacon are recognized, and actually it says in verse three that they're chosen from within by the congregation as effectively shiny examples of diakonos, of servants. It's, it's, it's a calling to stand up and intentionally serve. And here's the, th here's the key bit, to show others how to serve. Okay? You might have heard the term servant leaders. It's often a Christian term that's thrown around, particularly um, key. Well, think of deacons as leading servants. Okay? These are the ones we look to, to see how they behave to help us understand how we as Christians should behave. And here's the thing, they're recognized because it's a calling, they're recognized from within the community because they're already behaving in this way. 1 Corinthians 11:1 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's Paul speaking. And that's really what the heart of a deacon is. It's behaving in a way, showing others how to behave, right? They're leading servants. Number two, a deacon is a gift to share. So it's a calling and it's a gift. Now, in this passage, in Acts um, 6, what we, what we see is, is um, men being chosen to what they're calling serving tables. But again, we need to understand the context of the writer and the context of what that meant at the time. Now, what actually they were talking about is the tables of the Lord. Now, if that concept is, is new to you, and as it was to me, to be honest, I'm not sure I even heard of this phrase, but it's made up of two things. It's made up of the Lord's Supper, which I think most of us are familiar with, 
And it's also made up of what was called the love feast. And the love feast was very simply this thing where the wealthy amongst the church would come, uh, when, when they, whenever they gathered, they'd come together and they would bring food because they had the, the finance and the wealth to do that. They could afford to bring whatever they had. And they would leave it on the table for everyone to enjoy together as a community. And in fact, the, the poorer among the community were then allowed to take what was left over from, from the love feast and actually take it home with them. So it was just their way of sharing, right? Their way of sharing. And we're told in this passage that uh, the, the role of the deacons was to ensure the love feast was administered properly, to ensure that those in need, particularly those who didn't have much, um, were provided for, right? Which sounds really easy. Does anyone think that sounds pretty easy? Right? It sounds easy. And yet here's the thing. The daily distribution had been happening for a long time. It wasn't new, but it was being done badly. And so actually, these men of repute, these wise men were asked, fill of the spirit, they were asked to help administer the love feast because it wasn't flourishing. Okay? People were being left out. So the daily distribution, this act of ministry, this act of love, didn't require the seven to begin with, but it did require them to flourish, to continue well. And that's the great thing, is it's not just a calling, it's a gift. Because actually, effective deacons, they see problems. They recognise things that are missing and they step in. They step into the breach and they hold everyone up themselves. <coughs> ministry isn't dependent on deacons, but deacons can help ministry thrive. Okay? It's not dep- us as a church, we don't, if we want to go out and do some ministry on the streets, we can go ahead and do that. We don't need deacons to do that. But deacons can help make that thrive. Okay, it is a gift. Number three, it's a heart to care. The, uh, I don't know if you've, uh, I mentioned the term servant leader. It's kind of become fairly fashionable in the corporate world. Um, and I have to admit, I've, I've kind of been in positions of leadership uh, for, for quite some time. And this, but this is the first time I've ever been an elder. Um, and I can tell you <laughs> there is a dramatic difference between corporate leadership and church leadership. Dramatic. Um, I used to think I was quite good at leadership until I, <laughs> until I became an elder and I realised the weight and the different nature of um, what it means to be a, a leader. And actually what I want to do is I want to call out something very specific in the passage that a lot of people actually miss um, that I think really highlights what it means to be a leader particularly a servant leader actually i had a i had someone reach out to me recently um it was a a lady called allison Um, she was not on my team but she worked at the same business as i i I did and she had got a new role uh, at a different company um heading up a a team of strategists um, which was my function at the time so she she reached out to me on linkedin she said rich can i just pick your brain um i'd love to uh I'd love to learn how you kind of develop culture and how you create a thriving team and all that kind of stuff. And I was genuinely overjoyed that she'd reached out. Not because, I mean, okay, there's always that sort of pat, pat, pat on the back moment where you're like, oh, that's nice of someone thinking of me like that. But actually the reason I was so excited was because she is a selfless individual. Actually, she's a Christian. And she is so selfless. And I was just like, you should be a team leader because your selflessness is what is critical for you to succeed. And that's something, to be honest, that did, never came naturally to me. I had to, like, 
God had to change my heart to help me be, to become more selfless because that's not more how I understood leadership. I thought leadership was standing at the front, being the, the visionary guy, you know, inspiring the team. And I realized that that's not leadership. So let's look at um, Acts 6 and let's understand uh, or, or see what we can understand about leadership from Acts 6. So they chose, and this is the key bit, right? And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nic Nicanor, and Timon, I, sh I shouldn't be saying, I, I'm terrible at saying all these names, um, Permanas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, right? That is the key to leadership. Is anyone confused yet? Are you still with me? Okay, the, the reason for this is quite simple. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. Right, their first language was Greek. So they were Jewish and they kind of had some understanding of the cultural context, but their first language was Greek. Now, I think the insane thing is that what they struggled with at the time is exactly what this uh, country and, and this, this world struggles with at the moment, which is diversity. You know, diversity is a, is a huge topic in the corporate workplace. And whether intentionally or not, Different languages, different cultures, different upbringings, these all create challenges. And actually what we're told here is that some people felt actually left out and they were being ignored. Why? Because their first language wasn't, I was going to say Jewish, but Hebrew, thank you. <laughs> it was Greek. How insane is that, that they were struggling with exactly the same thing that we're struggling with now? But look how the church responds. Who do they pick? to solve the problem. Now, to most of us, we wouldn't get this, but these names, these seven names, this is the reason why the Bible ex you know, actually lists the seven names. They're all Hellenists. They are all Greek-speaking Hellenists. Now, just let that sink in for a second, right? Because what they basically did is the church went, we recognize our shortcoming. We recognize that we've accidentally, because of our culture, because of our language, we've accidentally left you out. We've, we've accidentally made you feel like you're not important. So we're no longer just going to fix things and, and look after your widows. We're going to give authority to you to look after our widows. We're going to trust you with the people who matter most to us. It's like saying, you know, we don't want you just to feel welcome. We don't just want you to feel like you belong. We don't want you just to feel like your place is important. We want you to feel like your place is vital. Without you, we cannot thrive. Okay? Imagine if our culture actually thought like that. Imagine if, you know, the CEO who was on a mission to see D&I increase actually turned around and said, actually, the best thing for me to do is step down and let someone else take my place. That's truly countercultural. You know, it's funny how Christ always trumps culture. I don't know if you see that. Basically, he's just gone, you think DNI is good? I've just raised the bar, okay? Because this is what the bar should be. You think empathy is good? Here's compassion. How can we practically apply this just in just a general, I think, helpful questions to be asking ourselves? If you realize that you have unintentionally uh, neglected someone, perhaps because of language, perhaps because you, know, you find it a little bit difficult to talk to someone of a different culture, how can we intentionally respond? How can we go out of our way to say, I recognize you, I notice you, you matter. 
How can we do that? How can we show them they matter? And when we feel neglected, how can we overcome any sense of hurt and actually serve those who weren't serving us well to begin with? Because that's exactly what the seven did. Our diversity as a church is actually a beautiful gift. It's one of the things that I love. Uh, The fact that we had a prayer in Cantonese this morning is fantastic. So thank you for that. But we also need to recognise it's a challenge. So we do need to be intentional. We need to be intentional about the way that we treat each other, about the way that we don't leave others out um, and the way we are inclusive. Because we have something that the corporate world will never have. And that's unity in Christ. That's unique to us. And that's why we will thrive when others don't. Now, the key thing I want to land, because we've, we've sort of talked through a couple of key things here. You know, uh, being a deacon is a calling, but it's also a gift. Um, and actually, it's also a, 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 it's a sacrifice. It's a way of serving others. It's a way of putting others first. But we also need to understand why it exists. Why now? Why are we even talking about this? Why do we think this is an appropriate time? Well, verse 7 actually gives us the answer. Can we quickly whiz up verse 7? And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continued to increase. The multiplication of disciples and disciple making. So we need to ask ourselves, what if Trinity did have deacons? What kind of ministries could we see flourish because of the calling and the gift of deacons? Now what this isn't meant to be is an inspiring pep talk. What this is meant to be is simply a, a, us saying, this is what's happening. Okay, we're starting a journey. And in fact, we've got on Tuesday, we've got the first of three sessions. They're all about an introduction to leadership. Uh, one is on, the first one's on character. <laughs> I'm doing that one. Um, which will be fun. But this is simply a, a way of us saying, look, we as a church, we believe that this is what God has for us in this moment. This is something that we want to step into. If you feel like there is a calling on your life for leadership of any description, if you think you might have something to offer, or even if you don't think you've got anything to offer, but you feel God's put something on your heart, can I encourage you, come, come along. Because I can promise you this, corporate leadership, worldly leadership, the way that we are told leadership looks out there is not the same thing as uh, leading servants. It's, it's, um, I was gonna say servant leaders, yeah, leading, leading servants, yeah, that's the right way. Okay, it's a very different style of leadership, but it's a very biblical one. It's a very godly one. So a beacon is a call to serve, to be a leading servant. It's a gift to share, to help the church to flourish, to help ministries to flourish. And it's a heart to care. It's a heart to put others first. But it's also actually a reflection of how Christ served his people when he came. See, we often sort of jump to the cross, and I will get there because it's the most important part. But before he got there, he actually looked to the practical needs of the people. He gave the blind sight. He gave the hungry food. He gave the lonely his time and attention. He sat with sinners. He sat with tax collectors and enjoyed food and comfort with them. 
You know, these, these men, they, women and women, they didn't have friends. And he sat with them. And he just spent time with them. He served their practical needs first. But, and this is the most beautiful part of, I think, being called to be a deacon. All of this, this leading servant heart, all of this points to something even greater. It is a segue to something more. Our service to each other is not the gift itself. It's not the reason to be part of this community. The ultimate thing it's doing is pointing to the ultimate gift that Christ has already given us, and that is himself. That is the gift of Christ. Now, again, if we look at verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. What is the word of God? It is the gospel. It is Christ. It is the fact that he came to die in our stead for our sins, to wipe the slate clean, to say, you are now pure because you are hidden in me. That is the good news of the Bible. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is what a flourishing church can see happen. To see the gospel spread in London and the nations. And that is what we're about. And that's why we think this is, an, is a moment in time to say we're ready. We're ready to step into maturity. Often it can be tempting as a preacher to kind of try and write something pithy and kind of witty at the end or something like that. But actually, I just want to turn to Andrew Wilson because what he says, I think, sums this up beautifully. This is from his book, Spirit and Sacrament. He says, The original Christmas present, wrapped in muslins and rags rather than in decorative paper, does not merely come to give. He is himself a gift. The gift, the most outlandish demonstration of love that God could possibly offer. Everything he gives the crowds who follow him, good news, sight, speech, ritual cleanliness, hearing, bread, teaching, peace, social inclusion, forgiveness, table fellowship, life, is in some way a precursor to his gift of himself, of his own accord, as a ransom for many. Deacons aren't just sensible They're biblical. They're not just sensible, they're necessary. If we want to see the word of God continue to increase, if we want to see the multiplication of disciples and disciple making, if we want to grow in maturity together as a church, if we want others to know the loving grace of a perfect saviour who gave everything in selfless service himself first, who paid the heaviest price for our sins, then we believe Now is a good time to start that journey towards deacons.